Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this week I'm coming from Israel doing the program here in a land where we're looking at the past, the present, and the future. The future pertains to an election that's coming up here in Israel. There is an election coming up. There's an election coming up here in the United States, but there's also one in Israel where you are right now. So this is a very important time as we look at uh, how things are coming together. As we always say here, the political sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And there is certainly a lot of political going on right now. Oh, man, is there ever. Well, Ken Timmerman will be here speaking on geopolitical events happening around the world, again, touching on Russia, Iran, and China. Some very important information. Stay tuned for that. And then David Dolan, Winky Madad will be here. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, the Legacy Series, talking about Satan's subtle strategy and Satan's program to get rid of the Jewish people. It's not going to happen because we understand God's promise and his covenants with the Jews. Well, let's get started with our program today as we start always with Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us today. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him and his books by going to his website, KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Rick, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, absolutely, Ken. Well, we've got a lot to get to today, but we're going to start in Iran where the protests continue to rage on, and it looks like the government might start cracking down on the protesters. Uh, the government is cracking down on them. They're using live ammunition against the protesters uh, in Sistan, Baluchistan, which is the Sunni area bordering Pakistan and Afghanistan. And in Kurdistan, which is the another Sunni area bordering Iraq and Turkey, uh, they're killing people. Uh, as of now, the death toll is around 250. At least this is what's what we are hearing from human rights organizations outside Iran. But it could be much higher than that, Rick. Uh, the reporting that we're getting from inside Iran uh, of enormous demonstrations this past week to commemorate the 40th uh, day after the death of uh, Masi Amini. They were held in her hometown of Sakas in Kurdistan in the Kurdish region of Iran. Uh, reports of as many as 100,000 people gathering for this commemoration. Really an enormous, enormous demonstration. It is, um, uh, it is becoming increasingly difficult for the Revolutionary Guards, the Basij, and the National Police in Iran to curb these demonstrations. They're shutting down big industries, uh, such as the oil fields uh, in the South. This is a big deal. It is continuing. Again, we haven't yet seen some of the big players in the regime jump ship. We haven't yet seen the Revolutionary Guards refuse to fire, but we, things are getting very, very hot. And as the weeks go by, this resembles more and more the 1978 revolution. Well, we know what happened there, and there was a regime change, and it looks like that's a potential, but, you know, there's a long way to go. We've spoken in past programs about the Christian community in Iran, and we want to keep those Christians, plus the people of Iran just in general, in our prayers during this difficult time as they protest the brutal regime. Well, let's switch gears and look at Russia, and there's been some interesting developments there, and certainly not for the better. It looks like Russia is looking to escalate this crisis into space. An extraordinary development. Uh, this is an announcement by a Russian official 
that they could strike Western satellites that are aiding Ukraine. Uh, this is something that has never been done. Uh, we're talking about a statement by Konstantin Voronstov at, at the United Nations, senior foreign uh, ministry official, where he said that this quasi-civilian infrastructure, quote, may be a legitimate target for a retaliatory strike. We have never heard a government of any country actually threaten to strike satellites in space. China and the United States have demonstrated an anti-satellite capability, but very quickly shut down any uh, threat, any notion that they might actually use it. They wanted to demonstrate the capability so other countries would not use it against them. The Russians are also believed to have this capability and they're threatening to use it. Never heard of before. We're in uncharted territory here. Well, we certainly are. And then another, maybe even more concerning story, is a senior U.S. official has said there are new troubling developments involving Russia's nuclear arsenal. The, Russia's, the Russians are uh, currently holding annual nuclear uh, exercises. They're testing their systems. They're testing command and control. Uh, they are testing their ICBMs and their shorter-range missiles. And they have claimed that they see signs that the Ukraine is preparing a dirty bomb. Now, Rick, I've been around for a number of decades watch, watching the Soviet Union, watching a former Soviet propaganda, KGB propaganda. This is a classic, a classic case of provocation mm. where the Russians will claim that Ukraine is preparing a dirty bomb against them. And then to prevent that from happening, themselves use either a dirty bomb or low-yield nuclear weapons to defend the eastern part of Ukraine that they have annexed. Uh, this is, uh, we're getting into nuclear brinkmanship here, extremely dangerous, but also uh, a disinformation campaign where, uh, look, in war, obviously the first casualty is the truth. Both the United States and Russia are engaging in disinformation, but this type of threat, uh, saying that Ukraine is preparing a dirty bomb is very, very, very serious uh, and could have extremely serious consequences. Well, it's certainly good. And we'll keep an eye on both of those situations, uh, like you said, and very worrying that we're moving into uncharted territory in a lot of different ways there with the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Well, Ken, let's finish off your report today talking about China. And there's been some interesting developments there apparently somewhat contradictory reports coming out. The first report says that China is upset about the U.S.'s nuclear policy and saying that may fuel an arms race. But then another report saying they're offering an olive branch. President Xi is offering an olive branch to Washington. Correct. These are apparently contradictory uh, developments. But let me say this. The Nuclear Posture Review, which the United States releases every four years or so, uh, this year includes some rather uh, dramatic uh, new developments. In particular, they're talking about a flexible deterrence strategy and force posture tailored to counter China. And it includes the deployment of our latest generation nuclear warhead. It's in a low yield uh, configuration that would be launched from submarines. Now, this is something we haven't done before, uh, and it's something that has got the Chinese 
very, very concerned. They have been screaming about this in public uh, and saying that it's uh, aimed at China, which in fact it is. It is. It, it's in black and white mm. in the nuclear posture review. I, I find this a disturbing uh, development. Again, it shows that the United States is itself trying to tear down the barriers to nuclear weapons use. It's something we have never seen from any administration uh, in the past. And I find it a very worrying development. Now, the reason for this, you could say, is because of the enormous expansion of China's nuclear weapons arsenal. And that is true. But nevertheless, we still have uh, many times more warheads and missiles than the Chinese do. And we have a far greater capability of inflicting uh, damage uh, should God forbid the world come to a nuclear conflagration. Uh, we have a far greater capability of inflicting damage on China than they do on us. So I find these developments disturbing. And uh, President Xi, in his offer to meet with President Biden to perhaps discuss their differences, to work for what he says mutual benefit, it may be a way for the Chinese to try to de-escalate here and to say, look, uh, we made some threatening statements about Taiwan. You understand that I have my people uh, that I am beholden to and, and uh, we must take a tough line on Taiwan, but we're not about to invade Taiwan. That's what I guess he's going to say should he meet President Biden. And my big question, Rick, is whether he will also make a kind of subtle threat to President Biden, perhaps by reminding him of the monies that the Chinese Communist Party has paid to Hunter Biden, mm. the president's son. Could he be you know, willing to blackmail the president of the United States? I don't think it's beyond him. And I think it's something that uh, is entirely in the realm of possibilities. Well, in a related story, Ken, and we're just talking about what uh, Xi is capable of, there was an interesting event that took place at a key Communist Party meeting this week. That's right. This is the, uh, uh, this is the meeting that cemented Xi as president for life of all of the Communist Party hierarchy in China. And at the end of the meeting, in his glory, in his uh, ascension to this new role as the, 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 the strong man that nobody could counter, he had his predecessor, um, who, who uh, walked off the stage in humiliation. It was an extraordinary mm. event. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, we have the it's been up you know, on, on uh, Fox News and CNN. You can actually watch this video of two security guards walking up to former President Hugh, essentially forcing him to his feet, taking documents away from him. And he tries to turn around and appeal to President Xi, who just kind of shrugs him off, and then appeal to another top leader next to him, who also shrugs him off, and then he's gone. And we don't know what happens to him after that. My guess is he's probably somewhere in, under house arrest and will never be seen again. But I have never seen this kind of public humiliation really since, I guess you'd have to say, since the 60s under Mao uh, when, they, uh, when the Cultural Revolution began. Well, Ken, it certainly is alarming to see what President Xi might be capable of. I know on this program, we keep an eye on the Middle East, we keep an eye on Russia, but we are also certainly China watchers because many people feel that China is the greatest threat to the United States. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for all that you do, keeping our listeners informed on the geopolitical events taking place around the world. You do an excellent job each and every week, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Rick. God bless. 
We're going to take a break, but stick with us. We'll be right back with our Middle East news update right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this segment is the segment that we typically devote to what we call our Middle East News Update, We focus on the Middle East and, in particular, Israel, and there's so much going on right now that we may have to run a little long in this segment. And in order to do that, we have our good friend Dave Dolan with us. He's our correspondent, lived in Israel for over 30 years, and he is with us often. Dave, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you, Rick. Well, we've got a lot of stuff to get at, so we will start right now. We'll look at a story that we've been following over the last couple of weeks, and it's the deal between Israel and Lebanon, the maritime deal. Could you explain what's happened there and and what it means? Well, Rick, it really is a historic deal, uh, very important. Um, I know Lebanon very well. My first four years in Israel, I worked in South Lebanon with the Christian radio station there and know the people, etc. And the Lebanese Christians and the, even the Lebanese uh, Sunni Muslims are pretty pro-Israel. Uh, they get along, more or less, the Christians in particular. But of course, the Shiites, under the thumb of Hezbollah, are very hostile. So we still have a state of war between Lebanon and Israel. The U.S. tried to mediate a peace treaty several times over the decades between the two countries, but 
Each time, Iran thwarted it through its Hezbollah proxy force in Lebanon. And finally, we have a signed agreement between the two countries, the first ever. Uh, but it doesn't have to do with the border on the land between Israel and Lebanon, which is still disputed. Uh, there is still a formal state of war between the two countries. That hasn't changed. But this is a maritime border agreement, as we've explained before that recognizes a series of buoys that Israel put out into the Mediterranean Sea, uh, demarcating the more or less boundary between Lebanese waters and Israeli waters. They put that out in 2000 when they withdrew IDF forces from Lebanon. And um, that has now been officially recognized by both countries as their border at sea. Now, why at sea so important? Well, because as we've discussed, there's a huge gas field out there. And most of it uh, by on most estimates, 80% of it is in the Lebanese zone, but some of it runs into the Israeli zone. So there's been disputes over that, Hezbollah threatening to attack Israel's pumping stations there, platforms, if it were to begin uh, pumping national natural gas out of there. And of course, we don't have to point out the importance of extra natural gas to the world right now, in particular to Europe. And Israel has ongoing talks with Turkey and Cyprus and Greece one with a pipeline going up to Turkey, the other with a pipeline going through Cyprus to Greece and then all of Europe to take some of this gas up there, very much needed in the face of Russia's uh, war in Ukraine and shutting off their supplies to Germany and other countries. So this formally recognizes that border. It was signed on Thursday uh, right along the border in the Kura. That's a small Lebanese village where the UN has its peacekeeping force headquartered. I've been there many times. And it it was low-level Israeli and Lebanese officials that were at the um, signing ceremony there. But the American uh, negotiator who did all this, Amos Hochstein, was there. He praised the agreement, as did President uh, Biden in Washington, by the way, as he was meeting the Israeli president, uh, said this is a historic breakthrough. Hezbollah, importantly, announced that it uh, recognized this accord. It had to. It had earlier stated that it would try to thwart it. But Lebanon is falling apart economically. We've discussed that uh, many times over the years. It's been happening for several years now. And uh, they very much need the income from that gas field. And so they basically said, the other parties said to Hezbollah, stand down here. We're going to sign this deal and we don't want you to interfere with it. And in the end, Hezbollah said they have accepted it. Their leader Nasrallah on Thursday said that they would de-employ their forces from the area, basically, and not try to interfere. Uh, whereas they had sent some uh, drones to attack the platform a couple months ago that Israel shot down. They say they're finished with that. Uh, then Hochstein went to the capitals of Beirut, of Lebanon, Beirut, and it was formally signed there, and to Jerusalem, where it was formally signed by higher-up leaders. But the two delegations in Nakura did not talk to each other. They sat at opposite sides of the table. There was no interaction at all. Uh, but when Hochstein ended the ceremony by congratulating both sides and saying this is an important breakthrough, there was applause from all of the um, Lebanese and Israeli delegates mm. that were there. The Lebanese president is facing a possible election uh, next week. I won't go into all of that. And of course, Israel's having elections. Uh, earlier, Benjamin Netanyahu had stated some 
uh, very big concerns, if I can put it that way, with the agreement. But he's also kind of gone silent. And Lapid, running to, again, remain as prime minister, has been hailing this as a major accord, a major breakthrough just a few days before the Israeli elections. So it has political implications, but it is at least a chance that there will be a flow of gas from that area without disruption. But of course, we still have Iranian submarines that could attack those platforms. We still have Russia, that if they got into a bust up with Israel, uh, could do so. And there's other things that could happen. But it's an important breakthrough at this point. Well, it certainly is. And I guess the thing that I kind of raised my eyebrows at the most is the fact that the leader of Hezbollah gave his kind of tacit uh, stamp of approval for this deal. But uh, basically, based on what you just told us, that was more of a pragmatic thought than an, an, an ideology shift there. Is that correct? Because you, you also said they wanted to make sure that this was not a normalization of ties between Israel and Lebanon, and they didn't even meet under the same roof. Exactly. And um, Nasrallah did point out that it isn't a formal recognition of Israel in any way, that it's just dealing with this one issue. And again, a third of the population of Lebanon, um, up to 40% today actually, are Shiite Muslims. But they're also suffering greatly from the economic distress that the country is in. And they also would benefit greatly from an infusion of uh, money due to this sea this gas field. So Nasrallah was under pressure from many of his own people to stand down on this. He was, of course, under pressure from Iran to scuttle it and continue the battle against Israel, full blast and no recognition of Israel in any way, even indirectly, et cetera, et cetera. But Nasrallah knew that inside of Lebanon, his position would be very much challenged if he had continued to oppose this accord. So he stood down on it and it's been signed and sealed and delivered. Biden's um, supporting it very, very strongly. Uh, He sees it, I think, as another thing he can talk about before the American elections. Uh, He knows that American Jewish voters will be very happy that this has been signed. And of course, most Israelis, whatever their political affiliation, want to see these gas fields develop. They need the income as well, not nearly as badly as Lebanon, but uh, basically the public opinion in both countries is go for it and, you know, we'll resolve these other issues, the actual ground border and whether there's a continued state of war or not, we'll resolve those later on. Well, Dave, before we go to talks about the elections, let's continue to stick with the northern border of Israel and Syria. And Syria is claiming that Israel has conducted military strikes into Damascus. Yes, Rick, and it's the first time in well over a month that there's been any known Israeli strikes in Lebanon. The first was last weekend, last Friday night. And then on Monday, there was a rare daytime strike around Damascus. And then Wednesday evening, there was another uh, strike into Lebanon. The Syrians uh, said they had shot at enemy missiles and brought them down. Reports that one Syrian soldier was killed in the exchanges. But there had been speculation in Israel over the past few weeks that maybe with the war continuing to heat up in Ukraine, with the tensions growing with Russia, with Ukraine putting pressure on Israel to support it more strongly, which, by the way, they did announce this week that they would be sharing more intelligence 
uh, with the Ukrainians. They would be supplying Ukraine with an anti-aircraft alert system, but not with defensive missiles as uh, Zelensky wanted, but at least something. And Zelensky said he was satisfied with that, but that maybe the Israelis would no longer be able to strike Iranian-backed targets in uh, Syria because of the tensions with Russia. Well, these three strikes in the last uh, week prove that that isn't the case. We didn't hear any responses from Russia, whereas we have had those earlier warning Israel, don't cross the line, don't do this and don't do that. But in the last month, the Israelis uh, have uh, clarified that their intelligence has seen a stepped up Iranian flow of weapons into Hezbollah forces in Lebanon and into uh, Hezbollah positions and Syrian, uh, Iranian positions inside of Syria. So the Israelis apparently decided that enough was enough and they were going to go for it anyway. And so far, uh, the deconfliction agreement, as they call it, between Russia and Israel in Syria has held but uh, we'll see if after the elections, these strikes continue. And of course, it will largely, I suppose, depend on who wins the elections. Well, David, we have so much to talk about this week. As I hinted earlier, we'd like to keep you through the break. We still have more to talk about. Can you hang with us just for a few more minutes? I'd be glad to do it, Rick. Well, we do have to take a break right now. But when we return, we will have more with Dave Dolan and Winky Madad will continue to talk about the Israeli elections coming up this week. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our second half hour, and we are carrying Dave Dolan. He was with us in our second segment, but he's back with us now. We are carrying him over because there's so much to talk about in Israel with the elections upcoming this Tuesday. Uh, Dave, thanks for staying with us. I'm happy to do it, Rick. As you say, important days, a lot's going on. Let's talk about the elections now, David, and I kind of feel like when you look at it, maybe the big story this election season will be the rise of the religious right. Now, that's what the mainstream media may call it. Uh, I don't know that I would necessarily characterize it like that, but there are several political personalities. If you could, could you let us know about the backstory behind that and, and what we might expect to see in these upcoming elections? 
I will, Rick, and I'll start with the last polls, opinion polls that were taken before the election. They don't allow them to be published after uh, yesterday, actually. And um, one was from the Israel State TV network, Khan, and the other was a leading Israeli paper, Israel Hayom. And they show a virtual tie between the two blocks. The Likud, uh, Bibi Netanyahu's block, is projected to get 61 seats in the newspaper poll, which would be enough for him to form a majority government without uh, any other um, parties, uh, you know, well, with other parties on his side, but without going to centrist parties or et cetera. Uh, Again, we have 14 parties projected to get into the Knesset. The state opinion polls showed it tied that the Likud would get 60 seats, not quite enough to form a majority government with the anti-Netanyahu bloc, as it's called, led by the current prime minister, Yair Lapid, getting 56. But as you say, for the first time, the polls show that the third largest party will be a combination of two right-wing religious parties or nationalistic parties that are very strong in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, as it's called around the world. And that is a significant development. It's led by uh, Bazalel Shmotrik, who is the head of the religious Zionist bloc. Uh, He has in the past advocated a theocracy in Israel, a religious Jew that uh, believes that a Palestinian state can never exist in Judea and Samaria, strongly opposes that. But even more importantly is the second uh, person on his list, Itamar Ben-Gavir. He's been in the news often over the decades. He was a supporter of uh, the late Rabbi Kahane in the 1980s on the right wing, and uh, he heads uh, the Otzma Yehudit, the Jewish Strength uh, Party, in that alliance between these two. They're projected to get 14 seats. Now, that's been going up every opinion survey, Rick, over the past couple months. It started out at about 11, 12, 13, now 14 seats, and they would be the second largest party with uh, Netanyahu in his government. And uh, Ben Gvir is a strong advocate of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. He's often seen in Jerusalem. He always has a uh, a gun on his belt, uh, by the way. And uh, he's very outspoken in his uh, opposition to an, an Arab state, a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria. Earlier, he advocated the expulsion of all Israeli Arabs from the country in earlier years. He modified that uh, because he wasn't allowed to run in the Knesset elections in previous elections because that stand was deemed by the Supreme Court of Israel as racist, and racist parties are not allowed supposedly into the Knesset. But if you listen to some of the Arab parties, they certainly sound as extreme as maybe his position sounded to many Israelis. But he's dropped that, but he's going to continue to advocate if he gets in the government uh, for a rebuilding of the temple in particular. Of course, the left-wing bloc headed by um, um, Lapid's party. Second is Gantz's, Benny Gantz's National Resilience Party, uh, a former Likud breakaway, the New Hope Party, the current Justice Minister Gideon Saar's part of that. There's Arab parties, etc. But again, the polls all show them not reaching the 60 seat breakthrough that you would need to just have a possibility of forming a majority government and certainly not 61, but somewhere between 56 to 57 seats. So 
frankly, Rick, it looks like it's going to be probably another stalemate, another um, time of intense negotiations, uh, continuing political instability. Uh, unless Netanyahu can get those 61 seats and he went out to the West Bank, to Judea and Samaria uh, on uh, Wednesday this week and pleaded with the voters there to vote for his Likud party. He said, we're the leader of this bloc, but if we don't get more seats, then uh, we won't be able to form a government. In other words, saying to some of these people supporting the uh, this right-wing religious bloc, come to uh, the Likud first, uh, because these parties are going to be part of our coalition anyway, and that will get us over the 61, up to 61 seats. So we'll see what happens, but it's going to be tense, it's going to be nip and tuck, and uh, something to keep watching. Well, it certainly is, and that's what our program will be next week. We'll take a look at those results. Well, if, and you mentioned the rise of Ben Gavir and Smotrich, they are, like I said earlier, they would be called far-right extremists by the mainstream media. That might cause an issue, and if we look at it from America's perspective, President Biden, I don't believe, would appreciate increased influence by that crowd. And then you look at some of Israel's new partners from the Abraham Accords, the United Arab Emirates, and some of those other nations that they have recently begun to establish relationships with. Do you think that this quote-unquote move towards the right is going to affect those relationships? Well, actually, Rick, the United Arab Emirates already released a statement this week saying that if this uh, right-wing government comes to power, it will affect their relations with Mm. Israel. There's no question it would be a major move, a major move towards the right in Israel's history. President Isaac Herzog, who was in Washington, as I said, talked about it with President Biden and with uh, Secretary of State Blinken. They both told him that they would be hard-pressed to continue to support Israel at the same level, at least, if such a government took hold. Ben Gvir's talked about changing the rules of the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, weakening its powers. They wouldn't like that. Uh, Israel's peace partners, Egypt and Jordan, would be stressed by it. And Rick, I have to say this, that the Likud is basically a secular party. It has a lot of religious voters, but the majority of its voters are secular Israelis, but they're on the right wing. And many of them would find it difficult to support a Likud government that has this second largest party in it Mm. that is advocating things that they don't necessarily support or that they're, maybe they support them, but they're worried that the nations will turn against Israel even more uh, if such a government is formed. So it's not so easy as in the United States. You have two main parties, and you know what you're getting, and the alliances are within the parties. Here, again, you have to have coalition governments with a bunch of parties. The same on the, for Lapid. If he becomes prime minister or Benny Gantz, they'll have to again partner with some left-wing parties that are far to the left of where they stand in terms of a Palestinian state and maybe, again, another Arab party joining them. So it's a very complicated system. Frankly, I would say it it greatly needs reform, uh, but it's the way it is. Uh, So we'll see what happens there. But uh, it's very significant 
that these uh, that this right wing religious bloc is uh, gaining strength. And um, yes, there would definitely be a negative reaction from around the world and even uh, from the United States, I'm sure. Well, let's go to the other end of this complicated Israeli political system, uh, and we look at the Arab voters, and many are saying they could be key in breaking the deadlock in the upcoming Israeli election. Could you give us the specifics around that, and how exactly does that work? Well, Rick, the uh, centrist parties, Lapid's party and Gantz's party, have been holding rallies in the Arab towns and cities. They've been putting up posters and all of that, urging them to vote. The voter turnout amongst Israeli Arab voters, there's around a, a million of them, is always lower than the Jewish side. It averages 40 to 50 percent. Uh, opinion surveys suggest that that's going to be the case again this time. But yes, if the Arabs vote in greater numbers and if they vote for those Arab parties or if they vote for the left, left of center Israeli Jewish parties, which is what's being advocated, then they would prevent, is what they're being told, Netanyahu and this right wing bloc from taking over. So they're being told that your vote is crucial this time like never before. And um, we'll see if that does, in fact, bring out more of them and how that affects the final uh, tallies here. But it's a very complicated situation. There's no question about it. And uh, we'll see what happens there. But uh, keep tuned and uh, say a prayer because it looks like it may be, again, what we say in Hebrew, balagan, a real mess at the end of this. And, uh, you know, the same could be true in the United States if we have a hung Senate again and this sort of thing. So... Uh, we know a little bit about that, but Israel knows a lot about it. That is true. And saying a prayer both for Israel and for the United States is excellent advice. Well, next week we will be looking at an after-action report here. We are trying to explain what may happen and what the dynamics are right now in Israel as we approach the elections. But Tuesday the elections will take place, and we're going to talk about the results when we come back next week. So you'll want to be here for that. Well, uh, just a couple more things, David. On this extra time that you have given us, David, I know there was two big international visits by Israeli politicians. One, the Israeli defense minister. Benny Gantz, we've already talked about him a little bit, went to Turkey. Then Israeli President Herzog visited President Biden in Washington. Could you tell us a little bit about those two visits and their importance? Yes, the president arrived on Tuesday, just a whirlwind two-day visit in Washington. Some said it was tied to the Israeli elections and maybe also the American elections, because, of course, President Herzog is a centrist well-respected leader, the son of a former president, the son of a former chief rabbi in Ireland, grandson, I should say, of him, and kind of an ally of Biden, more or less a Democrat if he were in America. And Biden is probably trying again to um, secure more Jewish vote in the upcoming U.S. election. But uh, he met with Anthony Blinken, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state and other American leaders on Tuesday and then with President Biden on Wednesday, and he stressed in those meetings, uh, Herzog did, that the Iranian threat remains the greatest one Israel faces, that it's a growing threat, that it's a very serious 
threat. He didn't, of course, speak openly against uh, U.S. attempts to restart the uh, nuclear um, agreement with Iran, reinstate that, I should say. But he warned that Iran is a rising power. He brought photographic evidence of Iranian drones being used in Ukraine and uh, some other intelligence uh, concerning that. And again, the U.S. uh, leaders all uh, stressed their support for Israel, their continuing support for it. Uh, Biden, as I said, congratulated the president on the accord with Lebanon and basically said that U.S. support for Israel will continue. But as we said, if Netanyahu does form a government with this right-wing bloc, that that may be less than uh, he's talking about right now. And then Benny Gantz went to uh, Turkey for the first time, and a senior Israeli Government official. Now, Herzog, President Herzog was there earlier this year, so that was significant, but this is the first cabinet leader, and that was, of course, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, went to Ankara, met with President Erdogan there and other senior Turkish officials, and they announced the full resumption of military cooperation, as it were, between the two countries. Basically, that means intelligence sharing which they've been doing some anyway over the past few years. And of course, uh, to remind our listeners, and maybe they didn't know this, Israel and Turkey had very good relations for several decades. And then Erdogan basically broke those ties in 2010 when he upped his support for the Hamas, radical Hamas movement based in Gaza and started to side more with Iran in its conflict with Israel. And that uh, created a lot of rifts and diplomatic relations were frozen. Now they've been completely unfrozen and that's a good sign uh, for the future. And of course, Israel needs uh, all the friends it can get at this time. Of course, Gantz is wanting to become prime minister if the left bloc does win or is able to uh, form a government because he's more centrist than the others and might might be able to talk one or two of the um, religious parties into joining his coalition if he uh, were to lead one. So there's a lot of politics in these visits as well as the importance for the country, but uh, a good sign because, again, Israel doesn't need any more enemies, and uh, to restore those relations with Turkey is very important. But a reminder this week by those bomb strikes in Syria by Israel against Iranian targets that Iran remains its main enemy, very active and growing in its presence in Ukraine with soldiers on the ground now training them in the use of these at drones, et cetera, and Israel saying this is just the, in fact, Lapid said this out loud this week, this is the evidence that Iran is a nefarious force around the world that must be curbed at all costs. And the good news is the U.S. has halted those talks with Iran for the time being, not only because, of course, of the Ukrainian war and the Iranian drones there, but of the growing uh, protests in Iran led by females against the wearing of the headscarves. And uh, we're hearing that those are growing more and more intense every day. And uh, Israel's watching that very closely. Well, David, this week's report was heavy on the political. But as my father, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, used to say, the political sets the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled, doesn't it? It does, and uh, we miss him. (laughs) But uh, you guys are doing a great job uh, hosting the show and... uh, continuing to keep your listeners informed of what's going on. You know, the 
Bible says Jerusalem's the apple of God's eye. Mm. Uh, Ezekiel said it's the geographical center of the world, and the, the Bible makes it clear it is the center of end-time prophecy being fulfilled. So it's very much worth our while to keep our, our eyes on what's going on there, and I'm happy to be able to help uh, people do that. Well, as always, we so appreciate you, David. Thank you so much. God bless. As we continue with our Election Day special, let's move right along to our next guest. Winky Madad joins us. He's a frequent guest on the program, and he joins us for this pre-election special as we talk about the upcoming elections in Israel. And there's lots of things going on in Israeli politics right now. So, Winky, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on once again. Well, Winky, the first story I'd like to get you to comment on, there has been a big story coming out of Israel, and they say it's a big story because the next chief of staff of the military is, quote-unquote, a settler. Can you comment on that story? Well, uh, he does happen to live in a community that is on the east side of the Green Line, which Hmm. uh, could give him a uh, definition of being a, quote-unquote, settler. He actually comes from a religious family in in roots. Should I say his grandmother's family is actually connected through marriage to Rabbi Cook, the former first chief rabbi of Israel, Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook. Uh, Whereas his grandfather, who actually I can't say that I knew him, I probably met him and I can't remember, but he was a staunch revisionist. In other words, a follower of Jabotinsky and was slightly connected to the Irgun uh, during the pre-state mandate years and the underground struggle. Well, uh, if we look at this situation, and you said that uh, in, in essence, this is not one that you would necessarily hang your hat on. It's just an oddity. Uh, but it does look like maybe the body politic in Israel has got a slight shift to the right. Um, Now, the mainstream media over here is calling it a shift to far-right extremism or religious Zionism. If you could, do you think you could explain those terms and explain what's going on so we can understand not necessarily just what the media's narrative is over here? Okay, I will try to distill and make a very complex, long-winded issue short. I hope I succeed. (laughs) The fundamentals of Zionism, whether it's secular or otherwise, is in the history of the Jewish people, which up until the 18th century or the beginning of the 19th century, meant a people who were about 85 to 90 percent either religious or traditional in some form or to some degree or other. In other words, everybody learned Hebrew when they were in uh, grade school. Most of them went to Talmudic academies. Even those who went off to become doctors or tradesmen or whatever, all in their youth, all had a religious home atmosphere and an upbringing, even if they went secular later on in their lives. So you cannot take religion out of Zionism. What happened, though, is that when Zionism became a political movement in the last decade of the 19th century with Theodor Herzl and Max Nordau, 
because they wanted to distinguish the willingness of religious Jews to suffer the exile and its tribulations and not do anything about it, they said we need a new national spirit to return us to the land of Israel. And they did not want to put too much of a religious uh, imprint on it. So on the one hand, there was something called religious Zionism, who saw this as a step in the right direction of redemption and were willing to go along. But the vast majority of what we know as the heart of European Jewry, East European Jewry, Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, and Russia, remained anti-Zionist because they felt that Zionism would steal religious values from the youth and the people. So nowadays, we have another term, as you ask me, what's religious Zionism? Today, religious Zionism means those who are willing to serve in the army, to put on a white shirt on Independence Day, uh, and to do all sorts of things of identifying themselves as proud uh, and loyal citizens of the state, rather than a Jewish community which happens to live in B'nai Brak or Meir Sharim or a few other places like that, and are willing to go along with politics so that they also get privileges and rights. And that's the cutting line. I would, For those who know nothing about Israel, I would say those who salute the flag are religious Zionists. Those who are not are religious Jews who sort of get along with the state of Israel. Very interesting. And what you're doing for our listeners, Winky, is providing context. When people say these statements, this is what it means. And, and, and I appreciate that. Well, one last instance, and it kind of relates to what I was talking about before, and we look at a move to the quote-unquote right or religious Zionism. Uh, in, you talk about that's kind of just a patriotic Israeli. Um, but as we continue to, to, to go forward, uh, one of the things that has become more and more popular in Israel is reconnecting to their roots, which means going back to the city of Jerusalem in the old city and to the Temple Mount. And over the last month, two million visitors, the last uh, the month over the, the religious holidays, two million visitors to the old city of Jerusalem, which is a record, and record numbers of Jewish visits to the Temple Mount. What is that signifying, Winky? Well, uh, it means that um, the vast majority of Israelis even if they will be voting left or centrist, still have a passion about mm. Israel being the state of the Jewish people. Mm. And as many people have said, not only me, you cannot take Jerusalem out of the heart of the Jewish people. They may mm. have different views about Jerusalem, but the propaganda and the denigration and the outright lies being said about Israel's historical connection to the land of Israel and to Jerusalem, whether there were temples, what is the Western Wall, uh, what happened in the 1920s and 30s and 40s that Jews lived there and disappeared in 1948, uh, and why they couldn't go there between 48 and, and 67, all these little details that 
Arabs or pro-Arabs uh, uh, will avoid dealing with because it shows up how wrong they are. And on the flip side of that, as I began to say, Israelis are very emotional about Jerusalem. They might even be willing to compromise a little bit here and there, but they will always say, I'm doing this despite this. Hmm. And so this is at the basis of the visits of, the, of, of as you know, the IDF has many uh, graduation ceremonies at the, at the Western Wall. Tens of thousands of Jewish high school pupils who in past years have gone to the, what we call the trips to Poland, you know, to see what was the Holocaust and what was the Jewish community in Poland before and during World War II, when they get off the plane, I think 80 to 85% are bussed immediately up to the Western Wall so that they finish realizing that Israel is the salvation of what we didn't have during the Holocaust. So all this is, is very much part of it. And as for the Temple Mount, of course, it's growing. And every time you'll ask me about it in the months to come, uh, years to come, hopefully, right? Hopefully, I'll be telling you there'll be greater numbers and more influence and more consciousness raising and, uh, and the whole thing. And just let me make one more final point to hook up with our previous issue about religious Zionism. The people who are religious but not Zionist in Israel, for example, do not look favorably upon Jews entering the Temple Mount. And you might have even been witness sometimes uh, the ultra-Orthodox will stand around and yell at people who are entering into mm -hmm. the uh, walkway going up to the Temple Mount because they believe that there are certain restrictions, according to Jewish ritual, that should not be uh, transgressed. And, and that's another issue besides the flag and besides the army and a few other little things. Well, as always, Winky, you take complex ideas and complex thoughts and reduce them to where we can understand them. We thank you so much for providing context around this time, such an important time in Israel, the elections coming up, but just in general, all the things that are happening and taking place in Israel. We appreciate what you do, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for providing me the opportunity to do so, and uh, goodbye to you. And our listeners. Well, that was a great opportunity to listen to two of our longtime broadcast partners, Dave Dolan and Winky Madad, as they talk about the upcoming Israeli elections. We're going to take a break right now, but when we return, we're going to have the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and we're going to take a look at the book. That's all right here ahead on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. So much is happening. We're taking a look at the events taking place. This is our pre-election program, the pre-election, not only for the United States, but for Israel and a new prime minister and a new government formed here in the land. Rick, we have more trips coming up in the future here in the land of Israel, don't we? 
We do, Jimmy, and it's it's so neat. I know that last night you spent the night in the old city of Jerusalem after touring in Jerusalem all day. And, you know, today you're headed up to the Galilee region. I, I know we've rehearsed this tour many times. You and I have done this, seems like hundreds of times, but it's such a special time to be in Israel, the greatest classroom for studying the Bible in the world. Yes. You know, Wakey talked about so many people there in the land, and we would love to have you come on one of our trips to the land of Israel. We'll have more information about that. You can go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Rick, this week we're going to conclude our study on angels. Today we will look at Satan's subtle strategy that was actually put into place when the devil realized that the Lord would send forth a Messiah. This Messiah was to take care of the sin problem due to the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. That strategy would include the evil angels that rebelled with Satan, a third of those angels. We begin our study today in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. There's going to be a Messiah that's going to be born. So what did Satan do? He went back to the strategy room and re-strategized. He said, the way I can stop this Messiah from coming is contaminate humankind. Humankind has to come forth from a pure line and bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he said, I'll have sexual relationship. I'll send my demons. He said, hey, wait a minute. A demon can become a man? An angel can become a man and he can have a sexual relationship? Well, they can take on the form of men. I can guarantee that. Have you not ever read the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis? Jesus and two angels appear to Abraham and Lot. And in chapter 19, Lot is there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And all of a sudden, two angels in the form of men come walking into town. What does Lot say? Come into my house. I'll wash your feet. My wife will prepare you a wonderful meal. He recognized them as men. Because they were going to eat and have their feet washed. Oh, they had hands too. Because they grabbed old Lot by the hand and pulled him in the house. And they had a meal that day. And the Sodomites came to Lot's house. Hey, we want those men that are in there. You say, well, Jesus said angels don't have sex. Jesus said they don't have sex in heaven. The question was... Which of the husbands is going to be this lady's husband? And the Lord said, in heaven, they'll be as the angels. But you don't use that text to say that humankind, men and women today, can't have a sexual relationship. That's God's plan for reproducing and bringing more people into existence. It's talking about the heavenlies. That's correct in the heavenlies. Angels committed fornication. How do I know that? I read the book of Jude, verses 6 and 7. Where it says they were put in prison because of their fornication. What is fornication? Biblically, fornication is any sexual relationship that God says is not right. They did it. What in history did angels co- commit fornication? In 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, they were put in the abyss, in the bottomless pit, to await the time of their judgment. Evil angels committed sexual relationship with human women. That's the reason God destroyed humankind. They have been contaminated with evil angelic bloodlines. 
There's going to be a fight in the heavenlies, a battle in the heavenlies. Look what's going to happen in verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. There's dragon as an apocalyptic term. Look at verse 8. And they prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. What happened at the fall of evil angels of Lucifer was that they were cast out of the third heaven, but they were put into the first and second heaven. The three heavens, Paul said, I know a man 14 years ago who went to the third heaven. That means there's three heavens. The first heaven is what we see out here in the sun and the clouds. Second heaven, the stars and the galaxies. Third heaven where God is. And so out of that third heaven, they were cast to the first and second heaven. Now, how do I know that? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers of darkness, evil in the heavenlies. And Satan and all the evil angels in the first heaven and the second heaven above us with Satan dispatching them. Finally, God's going to be fed up. By the way, there's one evil angel, Satan himself, who goes before the throne of God to accuse the brethren on a daily basis, 24-7. That's why the third heaven is going to have to be burned up. There's no third heaven in the future. You're not going to the third heaven for eternity future. It's going to be burned up because evil angel activity has taken place there. And now those evil angels are there and God's going to say, Michael, take the good angels. Throw Satan out of here. Look what happens in the heavens. Look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice ye in the heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. And of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but a short time. He's cast on the earth. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast on the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. No time to tell you, but that's talking about the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Satan is going to try to destroy the Jewish people. Look at verse 17. And the dragon, Satan, was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now notice back in chapter 9. This is the fifth trumpet judgment. And when the fifth angel sounded, I saw a star fall from heaven onto the earth, and to him was given. This is not twinkle, twinkle, little star. This is... Like Michael Jordan's a basketball star. I saw him fall from the, to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. Second Peter 2.4 said that's where they have been, these evil angels, committing sexual relationship with human women. And I opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the reason of the smoke of the pit. And where's this bottomless pit? I don't know. It's not on the earth. I believe it's probably in the heavenlies. And I consider a black hole probably the bottomless pit. Wherever it is, when it was opened up, the smoke covered up the sun and covered up the air. That word air is the same word in 1 Thessalonians 4. We shall be caught up to meet him in the air. Now these creatures, and there's 200 million of them that are released. He calls them locusts, but then he describes a locust. It's not like a grasshopper I've ever seen. Look right here in verse 7. And the shapes of the locusts were likened to horses. Now notice this phrase, horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were crowns of gold, and their faces were faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of a woman, and their teeth was as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, and it were, as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of the many horses running to battle. And they had a t- 
tail like unto scorpions, and there were stingers on their tails, and they had power to hurt men for five months. Never seen a locust like that. Like a horse running to battle, face of a man, hair of a woman, teeth of a lion, breastplate of a horse running to battle, a scorpion's tail. Doesn't look like a grasshopper I've ever seen. These are evil angels released from that bottomless pit where they have been since the time of Noah's flood because they had sexual relationship with human women. And what do they do? They come to the earth and they kill one-third of the earth's population. Another 1.5 billion plus people. Look what it says here in verse 15 of chapter 9. And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day to slay a third part of the men. Verse 16, and the number of the army of the horsemen. Remember back over there in verse 7? They were prepared as horses going to battle. These are evil angels. Some people have said, well, that must be the Chinese militia. They're the only nation in the world that can put together 200 million soldiers. Now, you don't know that's the fact, number one. And number two, the kings of the east don't come to later on in the tribulation period. These are evil angels coming upon the earth to kill a fourth of the people of the world. That are, A third of the people are still alive on the earth. Evil angels. Chapter 10. And let me just take a couple of more minutes. Chapter 10 of the book of Daniel tells us that there are going to be evil angels that will be released to take control of political leaders. In chapter 10, it talks about the prince of Persia. In verse 13 and in verse 20, the prince of Greece. And it's talking about the evil angel dispatched by Satan to take control of political leaders. Who was the prince of Persia? Haman of the book of Esther. Whose main plan, kill every Jew on the face of the earth. What happens when Satan is thrown out of heaven? Kill every Jew on the face of the earth. In verse 20 of chapter 10, it talks about the prince of Greece. Who was that? Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman, the Grecian leader who came into Jerusalem, who desecrated the temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar, who said that no Jew can sacrifice any animal. Political activities in the end of our time in the period leading up to the rapture and the tribulation period, evil angels dispatched to take control of human world leaders. Why do you think some of these world leaders, why did Adolf Hitler kill six million people? Because they were simply Jewish. Adolf Hitler was into the occult, witchcraft, and demonism. Study the facts. Evil angels controlled him. Why did Yasser Arafat walk into a classroom of 10-year-olds, take the teacher, have his militiamen chop him up in little pieces and then pick up the pieces of this teacher and throw it out among the 10-year-old students and say, if you collaborate with Israel, we'll do the same thing to you. Because yes, sir, if that, I saw it in his eyes as I stood right in front of his face. Evil angels, Satan dispatching evil angels to take over political leaders. They take over, and with this I'll close, they take over also religious leaders. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, or just let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 11, it's talking about false teachers. And then notice what it says in verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. 
And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Satan is not only dispatching evil angels to take control of political leaders, he's dispatching them to take control of men who stand behind the sacred desk. You need to be known as a student of the word so you can recognize apostate teaching, heretical teaching. Because in the end of times, evil angels will be dispatched to take control of religious leaders, even considered ministers of righteousness. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 says, they will have doctrines of demons. We better be aware this is happening. By the way, what do we do? Chapter 4, verse 7, James. Draw nigh to God. Submit yourself unto God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. You don't command the devil to do anything. You'll never bind a demon. You will never tell Satan he can't do a thing. You better not mess with him. That'll open you up for satanic attack. Submit yourself. Draw nigh to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. God's plan for dealing with the devil is, as I stated, draw nigh unto God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you and me as we follow the directive of James chapter 4 and verse 7. Remember, we must also put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil in these the last days. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series. If you'd like to listen to more of his audio teachings, you can go to our website at prophecytoday.com. Click on the bookstore and you can order books, CDs, and DVDs. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book. This week, we're wrapping up the program, our pre-election program, and we'll see how it all fits in to Bible prophecy, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, 
Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, this week, as we take a look at the book, Rick, there are so many events that are happening that we need to touch on. That's right. And Jimmy, on this program today, we started off with Ken Timmerman. He looks at geopolitical events for us. And as we do every week, we talked about Iran, Russia, and China. And I know that we often talk about this, but those nations have a special connection in the prophetic pages of Scripture, don't they? They sure do. And as we have touched on before, When you look at the nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38, then, of course, the kings out of the east, which would include uh, modern-day China, that will be one of the nations that come. I also believe India will be a part of that. And God uses world leaders to accomplish his will. The things that we see taking place, Rick, it just, uh, when when you take and examine them, you listen to them, you see how world leaders are making decisions that are drawing us closer and closer every day to the rapture of the church. And again, I hope as people watch, they develop a worldview. I hope it's a prophetic biblical worldview. As you watch the news, you understand why the world is doing what it's doing because you understand how it unfolds in Bible prophecy. We moved on from there and on our pre-election special. Now next week we'll have a post-election and We may or may not know the results Mm. because of the way the Israeli politics work and whether or not they could set up a government. But there seems to be a theme running, and and we talked about this with Dave and we talked about this with Winky, a kind of move to what some might call the right, a religious Zionism per se. Now, I mean, those are political terms, but what it seems is like the, the, the nation of Israel is becoming or is getting more of a collective consciousness of the importance of Jerusalem to the Jewish people, and even more so, the importance of the Temple Mount. Yes. You know, the other day, I stood right in front of the Knesset, speaking to our group, and explaining to them how the system works here, the parliamentary system, the coalition government, the elections, how they are set up, and the members of the Knesset forming together to come. And, of course, I'm hoping— I would like to see Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu go back in as the prime minister. I think he's the one to take Israel into the future, however long that will be that we have on this earth, because I believe the rapture could happen at any moment. But I do, and, and, and one of the things that one of our folks brought up on the trip is that really it's almost split 50-50 down uh, through the country, to the right and to the left. We do know, according to Ezekiel 37, that there will be two states in the future. I'm not talking about a Jewish and an Arab state. I'm talking about two Jewish states. It will be divided, and I think part of that will be 
the religious aspect of the community in Israel, that consciousness that you talked about. And then, of course, there's the liberal aspect in the country as well, where most people want to be like the rest of the world. Most people here in Israel, the Jewish people, they want to be as we are in America, as they are in Europe, where they're free to do whatever they want. I'm not just talking about the uh, democracy uh, as far as, you know, freedom of speech and freedom to uh, defend themselves. They're wanting to really to put the religious right on one side of the country and the liberal left on the other side of the country. I take this political only to say that there will be two Jewish states in the future. And I think every day we get closer to those two Jewish states coming to fruition. Years ago, Dad and I, you, we all talked to a gentleman that was putting together, uh, really, if you will, the Constitution for the second Jewish state. The religious settlers were a part of that, the religious community. And when you see this taking place today, I do think that we're heading to to Jewish states in the future. Well, you certainly can see that, Jimmy. And, and uh, of course, I guess in today's politics, polarization is basically what takes place. We see it between Republicans and Democrats here mm. in the United States. But in, in Israel, the lines somewhat seem to be drawn between those who believe in Zionistic principles and they believe, uh, maybe we'll call them the religious right, and then you have those that are atheistic and, and more leftist, right? Yes, I sure. I think so. And I think it's more of a nationalistic attitude. Uh, every time the world threatens the evil alliance, we will call them, that's what we've called them before, uh, Russia, China, and Iran, and those nations that will align with them, which do come out of Ezekiel 38. Daniel 11 and Psalm 83, when every time those nations threaten Israel, I think you start to see more people line up with a nationalistic, Zionistic feeling that they need someone that's going to protect them. And I think you look at the religious right, the settlers, the those that have moved and understand what it is to defend their families, to defend their synagogues, to defend their right to believe in the God of Israel. I do think that we are going to see that division come up sooner than later. Well, Jimmy, I know we're short on time here, but I just wanted to ask you, we are preparing, now we're talking about Israeli elections, but we are preparing for our own elections here in the state, and God did ordain government. And so we're looking at that. We must participate in that. Uh, What are some of the criteria uh, that we can use as we prepare for our own elections and as we could, that we can use to view the elections that are taking place in Israel as well. Yes. I think we used to talk about three pieces of information that you need. And Genesis 9 talks about the formation of government, the right to govern ourselves, the the reason that it's there, human government that was developed and I think uh, as we look at issues, as, as we look at those that are running for office, I think we need to see where they stand on the sanctity of marriage, on the sanctity of life. Do they believe in pro-choice or pro-life? And I think we also need to follow up how these leaders, these government leaders that we will elect, how they feel about the nation of Israel. If America turns its back on Israel, that will be, I believe, the death knell on America. And that really could happen in our lifetime as we are making choices 
in this next election in the United States as we see choices that are being the elections that will are being held in Israel uh, as Israel prepares to defend itself against that evil alliance in the future. And I do think we're getting closer and closer to seeing God's word come to fruition. I agree with you, Jimmy. I agree that we are at a time in history like no other. I think we say that just about every week, Rick. I agree with you. With everything that's happening, we always encourage you at the end of our programs, keep looking up until the rapture takes place. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 